1: Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash historyhack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash historyhack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We're going medieval today and to do so we have Hilary Green with us. He's a graduate of Liverpool and Liverpool John Moores Universities, author of several historical novels including the Folly series and The Last Hero. She's here today to talk about international trade in the Middle Ages. Hilary, welcome. Thank you. This is such a massive topic. Uh, where should we start? Should we start with money? during this period how does it work I mean obviously you have different currencies in different countries the currency is based upon precious metal isn't it which leads to all kinds of concerns about things like coin clipping
2: well that's right it is based upon silver and gold and I think the way it worked was that if the silver was pure if it was assayed and tested excuse me or uh, sorry I've lost you what's happened
1: no it's okay I'm still here
2: Oh, I've just got a bank screen now. Um, okay. the, um, as long as the weight was right and it was proved that the metal was pure, then I don't think it mattered which mint had issued it or whose head was on the back of the coin. It was all about the weight of silver or the weight of gold. OK, so how does money work during this period then? Well... Initially, of course, it was a question of merchants carrying large bags of of silver or gold around with them. But as uh, trade became established, uh, this obviously wasn't very practical. And what happened was that at the great fairs, great trade fairs in Europe, um, people, usually the Jews, set up what they called their banks, their benches, And they then would offer um, the uh, letters of credit, which could be exchanged at either end of the journey so that people didn't didn't have to carry large quantities of gold or silver around with them. But it did cause a problem um, when they were dealing with outside of Europe because the countries in the Middle East and the Arab countries insisted on being paid in gold. Mm. And that meant that by the end of the 15th century, there was actually a bullion famine because so much gold and silver was going out of Europe um, to the Arab countries. And of course, it wasn't coming back. It was coming back in the way, in the form of spices and silks, but that's not currency. So some of the silver mines were beginning to run down. Um, people hadn't got the technology to mine deep enough and for uh, quite a while there was a terrible shortage of currency and trade really suffered but then new methods of mining were discovered uh, pumps to pump out water so that they could mine deeper different ways of separating the silver from the other impurities in the ore Um, and that increased the supply of silver, and trade picked up again.
1: How much, you've just mentioned the Middle East as well, so I've just got back from the Middle East, everything still is about bartering there. How much has bartering come into play with medieval trade?
2: Not at all, as far as I can make out. Hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously locally, between members of the same village uh, or close by, that could be barter. But the big trading companies... Uh, were purely uh, working on on money transactions. I think it would be interesting
1: for our listeners to sort of get parachuted into a medieval market. So, what would the sights and sounds have been like? What would it what would it have been like to experience attending
2: one? For example, in the early years, um, the great markets were in the area of Champagne in France uh, because. It was an area which had good communications, particularly by river. Most uh, trade travelled by water. It was too risky to take it over land most of the time. And also, the Counts of Champagne were very aware of the advantage of trade, so they protected the trade fairs. So if you went to one of the great trade fairs at Troy, for example, um, you would find furs from Russia, um, Martin skins from Ireland, tin from Cornwall, fine textiles from Flanders, um, spices from the Middle East, uh, with uh, things like pe- pepper and cinnamon and nutmeg and silk. But in those days, they were traded there, but nobody knew where they actually came from. It was a complete mystery. But you could find all those things, and you could find things like horses, um, birds of prey, all sorts of things were were traded. It was a real um, melee of anything you could possibly want to lay your hands on. And how long would one of these trade fairs last? They usually lasted a few weeks, Mm. and there would be one week for, say, uh, edible goods. And one week for textiles and one week for leather goods and that kind of thing. And different merchants would come and set up their stalls and bring their goods. And then people would come from all over to buy and take them away. And what are the most common things that
1: people trade in? Wool springs to mind as an obvious one.
2: Well, wool was the great expert, uh, export from England. Yep. Uh, English uh, finances really were founded on wool. The wool sheared from sheep in the great monastic um, lands in the north of the country, in Yorkshire, around there, was better quality than the wool you got from, say, Spanish sheep. And the weavers of Flanders had to have that top-quality wool um, in order to uh, make the very high-quality textiles that they were experts in. So wool certainly was the most important thing as far as Britain went Um, it's interesting to think um, in fact so so many little sayings we have are referring to to the wool trade things like um, being fleeced or having the wool pulled over your eyes Um, a spinster is uh, a woman who uses a spinning wheel to to spin wool Uh, a lot of our um, sort of Common sayings come back to that period. And, of course, the taxes on wool financed the wars in France, financed Edward III's wars. He taxed wool very heavily to finance his wars. So that was the most important thing from this country. But then, as I say, there were all these other things. Um, the Hanseatic uh, League, which traded in, the, in northern Europe, they would bring furs all the way from Russia, um, and then you've got uh, basic things like salt and sugar, of course, which were traded. Um, I'm, you name it; you, they traded in it really. Precious jewels, um, ivory, elephant ivory—all mm. these things were traded back with the forts. What's
1: it? So- The rewards could have been massive, I suppose, for a merchant at this period. But you mentioned about moving things by water
2: because it wasn't safe over land. I mean, is it a dangerous profession? Oh, it was. Very much so. I mean, if you travelled over land, there were bandits travelling by sea. There were pirates Um, and also uh, the different countries, particularly cities like Venice and Genoa, were constantly at war with each other. Over trade. So apart from the general hazards of um, sickness and uh, getting lost or te- storms and tempests, um, travelling anywhere um, in Europe and in the Middle East was a very hazardous business in those
1: days. Are there any famous merchants that spring to mind that have left sort of stories of, of how dangerous it was?
2: Well, I suppose the most famous one is Marco Polo, hmm. who went all the way to China. Um, it's been disputed whether he did actually get there all the way, but um, recent scholarship suggests that yes, he did. And that was a very perilous journey. And we talk about the Silk Road. Yeah. But it wasn't a road as such, um, it was a series of routes from one oasis to the next oasis. And nobody normally would travel the whole distance. Merchants would bring goods, say, from China to the first oasis, and then they would trade them for something else, and they'd be traded on to the next oasis, and on and on until eventually they arrived somewhere like Constantinople. But it wasn't a a well-organised route, although certain... Um, potentates did take a great deal of trouble to protect it. Um, Genghis Khan, for example, went to a lot of trouble to set up inns for travellers to stay in, to make sure they were protected, to pass laws saying that anybody who harmed them would suffer for it. Um, And they realised the the value of trade. But even so, it was uh, a hazardous business. And as I say, Marco Polo was probably, he and his colleagues were probably the only people actually did the whole journey.
0: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Are there big trading hubs? Um, Are there cities that come in and out of fashion during the Middle Ages as different goods become more or less fashionable?
2: Yes, that's true. I mean, as I said earlier, the... Great trading fairs in Troy and Provence and Champagne were the first ones, but then, of course, Venice became extremely important, and Genoa, and to a lesser degree, is like Amalfi and Pisa. Uh, they were the people who traded with the uh, Arab nations. Uh, they would go to Alexandria. Uh, or to Jerusalem, or to Tyre and Sidon, and they had what were called funduks, a kind of warehouse and accommodation which they would set up in these foreign places, and there they would bargain with the traders coming in from the Red Sea uh, and would uh, buy the spices and the frankincense and the myrrh or if they were uh, on uh, maybe in Antioch they would buy silk coming through from China.
1: Uh, you mentioned Flanders as well um, personally spend a lot of time in Ypres and of course the cloth hall was rebuilt after the First World War but that was a massive centre at certain
2: points in the Middle Ages wasn't it? It certainly was a, a centre particularly of making textiles mm. Uh, it was very, very, um, important in that area. Um, and uh, yes, if you went to, uh Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom,
0: like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right.
2: Bruges for example uh, you could buy practically anything you could possibly want I mean even things like oranges although they wouldn't be the, the sweet oranges that we know now they would have been bitter oranges but you know really exotic things would be brought there uh, in exchange for the fabulous fat uh, textiles they made I mean beautiful tapestries woolen goods all sorts of um woven goods which were very very uh well thought of and much thought after
1: you've mentioned as well of course the silk road going all the way to china and that I, i'm guessing trading networks would have spread the entire length and breadth of the known world do we see people going backwards and forwards from sub-saharan africa as well for instance
2: yes we did um a lot of gold most of the gold came from africa um Mansa Musa, the king of Timbuktu, was the richest man in the world because he had unlimited supplies of gold. Um, and when he went on Hajj to visit Mecca, he spent so much gold in Egypt that the currency collapsed and he had to borrow it <laughs> back at a high rate of interest. Um, so, yes, certainly gold from Africa and slaves. That was another trade. Um, Christians weren't supposed to own slaves, but it was okay as long as they were not Christian. But uh, most Christian societies didn't go in for saving, but they certainly bought slaves and sold them on to the Arab countries and the Muslim countries, which did employ slaves. So that was another big element. I'm just still curious about the king
1: of Timbuktu. Do we know what he was buying in Egypt to have spent so much gold?
2: I don't think he was buying exactly. He was just, uh, he had an enormous train of people with him, Mm. all dressed up to the nines. And he he was supporting all these people, buying food for them. And he was also extremely charitable. He was building mosques everywhere he went. So that's
1: uh, where the money was going. Okay, so there's just such an influx of his gold into the market that the whole thing falls down. That's right. Wow, that is some amount of money, isn't it? He sounds like a traitor as well.
2: (laughs) Yes, it's it's an amazing story.
1: I mean, we've talked about everything, um, sadly, from human beings to furs to gold. Do we see an exchange of ideas coming along as well?
2: I think that is the most fascinating part of it. Yeah, I'm thinking Um,
1: as well of the library in Alexandria um, with the swapping of the books through traders
2: coming in. Well, that's right. I mean, at that period in history, medieval Europe was very backward um, in all sorts of areas of intellectual life because the Christian church thought that the, the knowledge of the Greeks, for example, was pagan knowledge. And therefore shouldn't be propagated. So, medieval Europe had completely lost touch with the classical knowledge, whereas um, in Constantinople, where the, that, although it was a Roman city, the language was Greek. So, they kept all these, uh, were, uh, all this work by people like Aristotle and Plato. They were known there and were were copied and passed on. And then when the great civilizations of Persia and Egypt came into being, they sent scholars to Constantinople to collect these documents and translate them into Arabic. And that's how they were all in the great libraries like the Library of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And it was when European merchants made contact with that civilization. they then began to uh, understand some of this work. I mean, they were so far ahead of us. I mean, um, the grandson of Tamburlaine, the great, set up a, uh, an observatory, and they were able to, cal- to calculate the length of the year to within a few seconds of what we call it, what we would agree to now. And the medicine was uh, very advanced. People like, he was known as Avicenna in the West. Uh, his books about medicine uh, were really the basis of all European medicine until about the 17th century. It's outstanding, isn't it? Um, other than
1: medicine and sort of, uh, it's, do we also see a... Uh... The spread of Islam as well. I'm thinking as well of um, Spain becoming um, yes, of course,
2: Islamic. Southern Spain, a large, yeah, a large part of Spain was conquered and um, was uh, Islamic, and that was another source of information for uh, scholars from Northern Europe because uh, they could go to Southern Spain and find all these documents, these. Um, these important writings about medicine and various subjects they could find them there and translate them back into latin
1: i just find like you say it is perhaps the most fascinating aspect as well do we see any i mean i'm guessing gunpowder as well is another one is it but oh, we well
2: yes i mean, of course that is that is the connection with china yeah uh, it wasn't just silk uh, yes gunpowder they are initially produced it for making fireworks, of course, but it was soon adapted to use in warfare. Uh, printing. Yep. The first printing came from China, and paper itself, of course, was a Chinese invention. Um, and the Chinese had books. Uh, a, a, a well-read Chinese person was supposed to have, I think, something like 100 books in his library which was amazing in those days. And, of course, they had to be written on, uh, on wooden slats or, or reeds. So uh, they were very cumbersome until the invention of paper came in. And then they were able to, to increase the, the, the number of books they produced enormously. But that certainly that whole idea came originally from China. Do we um, see... Say- oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say they invented things like the, the trebuchet for warfare, you know, the, the sort of uh, catapult that would deliver rocks against uh, uh, the walls of a fortress. That was a Chinese invention originally.
1: Do we see Western ideas going East as well?
2: Yes, um, certainly cultural ideas and religious ideas. Mm. Obviously, Christian uh, People went to China uh, and tried to set up Christian churches there. Um, They were quite um, well prepared to accept, uh, in those days, uh, different religions. Um, People, you know, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, were all travelling backwards and forwards along those routes, uh, disseminating their, their ideas. It's just fascinating, isn't it? If you could have, if you could put yourself into the
1: Middle Ages anywhere and have a look, where would you have gone? Oh, I think I'd
2: go to Venice. Yeah. Uh, Venice was absolutely at the hub of all this. And it was uh, such a vibrant society. Um, Different influences coming in from Europe, from Asia, from Africa. It must have been an incredible place to be.
1: Absolutely, I just I think as well, just the colour and the vibrancy of it all.
2: That's right. Yes, the beautiful buildings and mind you, a lot of those are a bit later than medieval. Mm. But yes, it, it was a, a vibrant society, undoubtedly.
1: All of the stuff that we've been talking about is sort of pre-imperial, isn't it? But trade has a lot to do um, with what comes next, as in the growth of empire. How does that come about?
2: Well, um, of course, the Portuguese had a lot to do with it initially because they were the people who were the great navigators. They found the way around the Cape of Good Hope and established sea routes to uh, the Far East where people, had, uh, Europeans had not been before. Um, but then when... Europeans, northern Europeans, realized the tremendous wealth there was um, in places like the Moluccas and India and Ceylon and those areas. They wanted to have their share of it. And there was some uh, there, there was warfare between the Dutch and the Portuguese for the right to trade in that area. And the Dutch eventually won. And then they set up the Dutch East India Company, and at the same time, the Brits saw that they weren't going, didn't want to miss out on that. So you get people going to petition Queen Elizabeth uh, to for permission to go and set up trading um, enclaves in India, and of course, that's the beginning of the British East India Company. And then, of course, at the end of the period. You get Columbus sailing to America and the whole pattern of trade all around the world changes radically from that day on.
1: What are the major differences that we see? Because obviously we see a decline in city-states like Venice and Genoa, don't we?
2: Yes, power tended to shift northwards then um, because uh, people who had access to the Atlantic um And the trade coming in from from South America, Spain, of course, initially became immensely wealthy um, and then other people got in on the the act, as it were, and the balance of power does then start moving northwards um, to places like Frankfurt was extremely important. Um, Of course, London was always a great trading city. Um, And... The people, wealth coming in from countries like, from companies like the East India Company um, brought tremendous prosperity to London and to England and same sort of thing was going on in Holland. I think as well, we, we assume that things like
1: Britain's obsession with curry comes from the 1960s, but that's not true, is it?
2: Well, of course, um, people were absolutely... Uh, they loved the spices that were coming in. I mean, pepper—a pound of pepper weighed more. It was worth more than a pound of gold, and they thought it had almost magical properties. Certainly, medicinal properties, and all these other spices. A lot of the of it came back with the Crusaders. Of course, um, they had gone to uh, Jerusalem, and they'd been in the Middle East, and they'd been in Constantinople, and they'd experienced dishes flavored with all these exotic substances. And then when they came home again, uh, they brought with them cooks who could replicate that. And it was a great sort of a prestige thing to have all these various spicy dishes. If you were giving a big feast, that you had to have all these elaborate sauces with different spices in them just to prove that you can afford to buy them. And one thing that springs to
1: mind, certainly just like in Henry VIII's time, I vaguely remember this from going around Hampton Court kitchens, um, is that they're preservatives as well, isn't there? So before refrigeration, um, spices are what keeps your food fresher for longer.
2: Yes, they helped. But of course, the real thing there was salt. Yeah, And that was another big trading item. Um, Salt roads grew up all over Europe running from the places where salt was produced to places which didn't have salt. Um, from For example, uh, from, Gen- from Venice uh, around Chioggia, they had salt pans there, and salt was traded from there. The Genoese traded it from Ibiza. Um, there were salt roads that went right up into northern Europe uh, where there were salt uh, areas where you could mine salt. So that was very valuable. And that really uh, was the most important thing for preserving food. Um, You know, fish in barrels of salt, that kind of thing.
1: Hilary, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, Your book, International Trade in the Middle Ages, uh, is out now. Um, you can get it on the History Hack bookstore, uh, by which, of course, you bypass Amazon. You don't give Jeff Bezos money for rocket fuel. Instead, the money goes to local booksellers and Hillary, and a bit to us as well. Uh, Hillary, thank you so
2: much. Not at all. Thank you very much for hosting me.
0: When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan